Let me invite you to turn again to Mark. We're marching through Mark's gospel, still in chapter 6, today starting at verse 7. And I've got to warn you ahead of time, there's so many gold nuggets in this chunk of 7 through 13 that we're only going to get through verse 7 today. And that should not scare you because there are so many good, rich things in there for us. But I wanted to prepare you so that if we got through toward the end of verse 7 and it's almost 12 o'clock, you're not going, oh my goodness. <laughs> so no worries. We've got plenty of time. We're going to tackle this. The big question as we read this passage, which I will do in a moment, that immediately jumps to mind is, does this passage, these instructions of Jesus to his 12, the inner circle disciples, do these apply to me as a follower of Christ? And if so, how do they apply? That's what we're seeking to do as we're looking at a good exegesis, unpacking what the scripture actually has for us rather than proof texting and making it say what? We want it to say. And so that's a good question. Some people can grab a passage, they'll look in their morning devotionals and find just this chunk of scripture, and they become convicted that they need to somehow sell everything they own and just go out in faith and do what God has called them to do. Well, I think you should know, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a foreshadowing of what we're going to see next week. This was a training mission. Just keep that in mind, all right? This is a training mission. We actually knew some people who had moved from one state to our state when we lived in a different state, and they decided to try to ask some people who would be open to having them to support them for a while. And we thought, that's a great idea. We'll do that until they can get established. That was our understanding. It was until they could get established. So they moved in with Joy and me. And then after a while, it became rather apparent they didn't have any real plans to do anything different. <laughs> and we thought, we need to have this difficult conversation and revisit this topic. And they were using this passage to justify the fact that we're here because we felt called to do what God has for us. And so thank you that you're that person of peace that God gives us so we can camp out in your spare bedroom. And we had to do a little exegesis of our own, and we had a good, uh, solid discussion with them. Eventually, they did both get jobs, and they did move out, and they both have been very integrally involved in different forms of ministry at one point or another. But it began to become a little bit of a tricky situation for a couple of months there. So it's a good question. It's a practical question. How much do we apply what Jesus is telling the disciples in our own specific lives? So let me read Mark 6, 7 through 13, and then we're going to start diving in, peeling back the layers, looking for the gold nuggets that we can mine from the passage. Starting at verse 7, today I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Those of you who know my teaching, I go for any translation that's going to get the right thought across, and this one was the closest I could find. All the good modern translations are so much closer to the original than we might have had at one point, and it's not, in my opinion, it's not a good thing to camp out only in one translation. You need to compare and contrast. That's healthy. So today, NLT. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals. I'm very spiritual, and I didn't even know I was so unintentionally relevant today because I had socks on because I have a little blister because I walked too long in my sandals the other day. And uh, 
My daughter says, well, that's a thing again, Dad. Kids, young kids who are really hip are wearing socks with their sandals now. She didn't use the word hip. I did. But that's how hip I am. I'm so unintentionally relevant that I wear socks with my sandals. Aren't you proud? And I'm spiritual and scriptural because Jesus said it's okay to wear sandals. But don't take a change of clothes. All right. There's some good reason for this. Again, I'm saying this is a training mission. Recall that. That's very important. Verse 10, wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house. This is the point of contention with the people that we knew. Until you leave town. Yikes. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and to turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Let's pray before we dive into this passage. God, we know you as a generous father. And you have told us to ask you for whatever we need. And you say that if we'll do that, it will be given. And if we seek, we will find, and if we knock, that door will be opened. And we're asking now, we're seeking, we're knocking. We're asking for your guidance as we look into your word. We're seeking your wisdom, which far surpasses any human wisdom. Thank you for giving your children what's good for them. And we know that it's good to know that we can count on an answer from you to this type of prayer. We approach you now, and we approach your word with expectancy, grateful for what you have in store for us, and I pray that you will apply it individually and personally to each one of us. We thank you in the authority and the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So why are we taking our sweet time going through the book of Mark, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you why. A deep dive study like this allows us to draw from the text what the text says instead of finding proof texts in other places so that we can make the Bible say what our heart leans toward and what we want it to say. That's what we want to do as we're becoming biblically informed followers of Christ. We want to become really good at observation, interpretation, and application so that we're really getting the word from God that speaks to us in a personal way. So in our passage, we're seeing, broad overview here, that Jesus is sending the 12 out, the 12 disciples, the inner circle. And we also saw that he gave them authority over evil spirits, something he had shown before that he had the power to do, and to be preaching, preaching the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. So the first big question, without reading around for broader context, does this mean that if God is calling me to be a true disciple, I should just move out? and totally by faith start walking around and trusting that God's going to lead me to the right house. Let's look at these verses and see what we can discover about that. Verse 7, the very first part of verse 7, he called the 12 together and began sending them out. Here's one observation that I think we can ponder for a moment, and it's something that hit me like a ton of bricks when I first saw this some time ago. There's one name that has to be included with the 12, And we don't normally associate this name with somebody who's out preaching the gospel and healing and casting out demons, and that is Judas Iscariot. He's one of the 12. 
Jesus called the 12 after a whole night of prayer up on the mountain, and Judas is a part of that. Now, we're not reading a whole lot of stuff in here about Judas because he's just one of the 12 at this point. Interesting, isn't it? Now, because the name Judas in our minds, or at least in mine, is normally associated with the word traitor, we think of Judas, at least I do, as being the guy that you would expect to see in Scripture every time Judas is mentioned He's going to be the guy dipping into the money bag surreptitiously. He's going to be embezzling from the other disciples. He's going to be twisting his malicious mustache and putting more grease on the ends. He's the kind of guy that we see as the quintessential villain of the 12. And yet, here we are at the beginning of the ministry. The 12 are sent out, and they're doing the things that Jesus tells them to do. In fact, Luke corroborates this for us. He adds that these 12 were given the ability to heal sick people and that they were supposed to tell everyone about the kingdom of God. And it doesn't have any kind of except for Judas clause in this contract either. And they were out healing people except every time Judas would try it, it just fizzled. We don't read that. So I had to ponder that and think, well, what does that mean for us? There's some unexpected encouragement, I think, for all of us, especially in light of what I mentioned just last week. God still works through people who mess up. If we were waiting for a perfect, sinless person to come and do ministry in the redemptive work God has for us, we'd be waiting a long time because Paul says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody except Jesus. He's why we need a Savior. And it's because we are all sinful that we can expect other people, even though they're trying to do the best they can, they're going to fall into sin. We know that. Even well-meaning believers will do that. Does God stop and throw up his hands and say, well, sorry, you messed up, and I just can't do anything? I'm glad he doesn't give up. I'm glad he continues to do good work, even despite the fact that we have people who fall into sin. So here's the one thing, though. It's encouraging to know that God is still in control, and it's encouraging to know that most of the people that we see today, including the half dozen that I mentioned last week, in big organizations that have given the church a black eye, most of them... To my knowledge, not a single one of those have taken their own life as Judas did before it was too late to repent and turn. So we can pray for these folks and say, Lord, I'm praying that they will see the error of their ways, recognize that what they did was sin, that they will repent, and that they'll be restored. I think that we can pray for that for folks who have fallen into sin because all of us are going to come in contact with people who have fallen at one point or another. I worked alongside a bivocational pastor. He was a plumber. That was working in the digging ditches phase of my life, trying to help put myself through college a little bit, and that's part of why I felt called to use my mind and intellect instead of a shovel. (laughs) God bless you folks who can hang in there with 110-degree heat in Arizona with a shovel, but that for me was tough. And I was working for Bill. Bill was a great guy, and he was a bivocational minister, so he was helping start a new mission church out in the northeastern part of the Valley of the Sun. And I was his part-time arm waver music minister doing that stuff and also part-time he would go to these nursing homes they called them nursing homes back then I know that's probably not what you call them today and he was ministering the gospel wherever he could however he could after I left Arizona to go to seminary I got distressing and terribly saddening disappointing news that Bill had been living kind of a double life and that he had a real moral failure broke my heart Because I was leading music for this guy who was preaching strongly the word and giving an encouraging word to those people that he ministered to. 
Does that mean that God just got an eraser and went up to the whiteboard at the front of the room and said, okay, Bill, everything you've done is for naught. It's completely, no. God still works through things like that. This is probably a good segue into looking very briefly at end times information because there's something we need to be aware of. Allow me to get into a little end times explanation. Everybody up for some eschatology today? If you are, say, eschatology. Right on. I love eschatology. Well, the Bible teaches that there will be two types of judgment at the end of time. One will be the judgment for believers, referred to in 1 Corinthians 3, during which God's going to give believers the rewards for those things done while we were on the earth. I've mentioned this a few years ago. It's been a while. Talking about how we can think of this almost like those three platforms in the Olympics. And people are handing out the rewards for a job well done. So this is something that believers should not have to worry about. We shouldn't be extremely anxious about going before the judgment seat of Christ because he's there to give us rewards. Now, yes, we are going to answer for every sin. That's true. But those things that are wood, hay, and stubble that Paul mentions are going to be burned up, and all those things that are purified, uh, the silver and the gold and those precious gems, those things are going to withstand the refiner's fire, and they'll still be there. We're going to have rewards. And part of that reward is based on what we did with the gospel and while we were here, the good works that we did on earth. Not for our salvation, but it's something that we get to enjoy in the future. So this is not a judgment for determining salvation. This is not something like some people would say in the movies where they're completely taking things out of context and that God's going to say, okay, here's all your good works and dumps it over onto this tray, you know, and they got the scales and then here's all your bad works. It's not the way it works. How do we know that? Because Jesus accomplished everything for our salvation. He did so by atoning for our sins on the cross. So we can't add to that or subtract from it. That's how we get saved, by simply placing our faith in him. He's the one who did the work. So it's good to know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, which is why we need not fear the judgment seat of Christ. We appropriate that salvation by faith. John 3.16 tells us about this. Romans 8.1, no condemnation. All those good verses help us understand that we can approach the judgment seat of Christ with anticipation. We can actually be eager to stand before the Lord one day because I can't wait to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. For those who are in Christ and living for him day by day, we're plugged into the vine like a branch. It's an exciting day. We get to look forward to it. Then there's this other judgment. It's called the great white throne. The other judgment mentioned in Revelation 20 for unbelievers. That's going to take place at the great white throne of judgment. And this is not a judgment at which people can suddenly decide, uh, yeah, I want to get in this line. Too late. It's too late for them. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You're not going to be given this last chance just at this last throne and say, oh, yeah, whoops, I'm sorry. That's kind of like the kid that comes in with his hand in the cookie jar and he's got chocolate all over his, all over his face. He said, but I said I'm sorry. There's no real repentance going on with some of that, and that's going to be the case with these people who get to stand before the great white throne. And that's really a sentencing time. Think of that in our modern judicial system as the time when God is going to sentence those who justly deserve to be cast away, cast out away from him. In Revelation, it talks about that being cast into the lake of fire. And it's not just annihilation where they're burned up and they don't exist anymore. This is an eternal torment. So it's up to God to determine whether a person has placed their faith in him for their salvation or not. We can try to become fruit inspectors, and we think we may have it down. I thought 
my pastor buddy Bill was being very fruitful in what he did. From the outward appearance, from what I could see, I thought there was a lot of fruit being born from his ministry. And yet I find out that there's some dark places of his heart and that there was sin going on as well. Now it's up to God to decide, was he faking it? Had he only given lip service and he wasn't really saved in the first place? We get into big, lengthy discussions and debates about that. Folks, only God knows for sure. And so it's easy for us to try to oversimplify that. I think the simplest thing for me is to trust God who is both loving and just. And he's going to sort that out because he knows if that person really has repented and has been a believer but he's just out of fellowship or if he had never been saved in the first place. What really matters is where they are, they need to repent and get back into full contact with God, facing the right direction again. So practically speaking, anybody that we see that's not walking with God, they need the same kind of treatment. We need to try to help them and restore them because we're ministers of reconciliation, as Paul says. So what, do, what we do know is that if somebody has done good works for Christ, God can still polish some of that gold and silver and those precious gems, and there may still be some good things remaining some of those folks that may have come to faith in Christ because of somebody's ministry, they may still stay plugged into Christ for the rest of their lives, even though this other person has had a big change of heart or fall into sin. Now, if somebody was a believer and they appear at the judgment seat of Christ and he asks them to give an account for their sins, some of that may say, uh-oh, yeah, these things are going to go into the refiner's fire. That's some wood, hay, and stubble. Those are those things that were done with the wrong motive or out of an impure heart. Or some things that, yeah, you kind of missed the boat on that one, buddy. But we don't have to lose heart. This is the important encouragement. We don't have to lose heart if we see somebody who has apparently been bearing fruit for God and then they fall into sin. When we see something like a moral failure, let's just pray for that person, including the people that I mentioned. One of them has already passed away, so we can't pray for him any longer. But we know that there are certain people who are still alive, and hopefully, regardless of what they have done, God will draw them back to himself, and they will repent for what they had done. Let's look at the second part of verse 7. He's sending them out two by two. There's some good principles here that we can learn. We see that Jesus sent them out in pairs, and this might be what many people could call today as a best practice. I know there are a lot of people in larger churches today that they will send their teams to another bigger church than their church and say, what are your best practices? We need to learn from what you're doing that works well, things that are efficient. It's kind of a business term, I guess, but we sort of adopted it in some churches. But this was a best practice for them. And we can see in Luke that later when Jesus sent out the 70, um, parenthetical statement, some translations say 72, others say 70, about half of the earlier manuscripts say it one way and half the other. So there's a bit of a debate on that. It's okay, doesn't matter. That's not the important part of the passage. The important thing is what Jesus is instructing his disciples to do. Most of the modern translations go with 70 because they say that 70 is kind of an important number in other passages in the New Testament, and they feel that that's probably connected in some way. Doesn't really matter. So are you a, if you're a 70-er, sit over here. If you're 72, <laughs> we won't split the church over it. And after the gospel was being spread, Acts 8.14, and the new church was growing, we see this. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people in Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there, two people. They sent them in pairs there. Also in Acts, we read uh, chapter 13. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul 
for the special work to which I have called them. Again, the Holy Spirit is empowering them, and he's the one who sets this into motion by saying, there's a pair of guys that need to go out there. And here's one more example. This one from a time when Paul and Barnabas had had such a difference of opinion about John Mark, because uh, Paul felt that John Mark had wimped out on them in an earlier time. Now, he doesn't need to go with this. He's liable to wimp out on us again. I'm putting words into Paul's mouth, but that's what we expect that he might have thought. And so Barnabas, the encourager, his nickname, is saying, no, let's give him another chance, Paul. And I'm imagining what that might have sounded like. It said that was no small argument. So large an argument was it, in fact, that they split and went two different directions. But they didn't split up and have just one person in each team. They each gathered somebody else with them. Paul chose Silas, and he left, and Barnabas took John Mark. So there were still pairs. There were still two teams. So even though there was a difference of opinion about the character of this young guy who apparently had had some woof out in his past, Paul decides to go one direction. He grabs somebody else, goes with him. So there's one pair, and Barnabas goes with John Mark, another pair. Also, we see the epilogue. Paul comes to really respect John Mark later. So there's a character arc. Everything is okay there. It ends well. Why did Jesus start this practice, and why do other apostles continue it? Well, you know that old Hebrew saying, four ears equals two witnesses. I don't think that's a Hebrew saying, but it makes sense. Four ears equal two witnesses. Paul was planning to go back to Corinth at one point and to take care of a matter there that was difficult, and he needed some witnesses. So he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. What happens when your parents say that? How many times do I, I'm going to drive this car right now. But Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to visit you. As the scriptures say, the facts of every case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's helpful to have two people representing the truth. It adds validity to the message, for one thing. Person one says, Jesus said this. Person two, yep. It's validation. And it's also good to have somebody to listen because if you're in some sort of a discussion, a.k.a. an argument, and those people are reporting back to another group what they have heard during that time, there's somebody to corroborate what they heard. Person one, that's not the way I heard it. Person two, me neither. That's important as well. So two witnesses is very important. So I think by having a minimum of two people in a team was just practical. It made good sense, and it fit exactly what Paul was talking about when he said, you need those extra witnesses. Here's some more practical reasons, and I think this is really good for us today because there are a lot of people out there just floundering. I don't know if you've been a long-distance swimmer, any of you. I know some of you did some swimming back in your earlier days. And I, I remember having to swim a mile for my final exam in college because I took swimming thinking, easy A! How difficult can this be? <laughs> it was not as easy as some might have thought. But if you're by yourself, it's easy to get discouraged. And yet somehow, if you see these people who are crossing the English Channel, for example, they've got somebody, come on, you can do it. You've got that extra person there to encourage. It's so much easier. In fact, Ecclesiastes 4.9 says it very plainly. Two are better than one. That's it. Two are better than one. Good verse. I like that. Two are better than one. Big tasks become easier. Or how about this one? When one gets discouraged... The other encourages, quote from uh, White Christmas, it's mutual, I'm sure. If either of them falls down, says Ecclesiastes, one can help the other up. Or as they would say in the old southern 
thing with two old people. Well, we prop each other up on the leaning side. That's what we do for one another. I remember back in the old days at South Arbor, our second place of nomadic lifestyle, and the winters there were harsh. You recall, if you were there during that time, that we had built a garage, a.k.a. shed, right out behind the school and then gave it to them as a gift when we left so that they could use it to store stuff as well. We had all of our equipment out there, but there was a sidewalk going to another sidewalk, going to a big step up, had to build a ramp, into the hallway, through some doors, down the hall, and around the corner into the gym so we could set up. The winters, oh, man, I don't know. It's, it's like, oh, you got a sidewalk to go over? Let's crank up the snow on Saturdays. That seemed to happen so often in the winters. The snow was coming down. And sometimes the snowplow guy would not get the memo that we had to move equipment from the garage into the building. So where did he pile the snow? Right where we had to get. So I would show up early on a Sunday morning, and I would look, and this mound that's like three feet tall is right where we have to roll these carts. And I just, there was one time when I'm digging, and I'm going, God, I'm having an honest conversation with you. Could you please call me to Florida? <laughs> I'm honest. I'm getting weary, Lord. I don't know how much I can take this. I'm getting weary. And then I got over, and the lock was frozen. And so I thought, warm it up with my hand. Warm it up. Try to get it warm. Try to get it warm. Don't go too hard because you don't want it to. <laughs> Key broke. So now we can't even get into the lock to get into the equipment. And I was just, just about done in. I was about ready to resign that day, but I didn't. And then Bill George comes up, and he just happens to have an angle grinder. Let me go get my angle grinder. I have it in my back pocket. You know, he's that kind of guy. I'll take care of it. And then Jack shows up. Here, I'll start shoveling some snow, and other people are gathered around. And it was so good for me to know that I was not alone, because if I had been the only guy there that day, I probably would have gone to Florida, and I'd probably still be there to this day. It's a practical encouragement that two are better than one. And when one gets discouraged, the other can encourage somebody else. And that's why anytime we have a team of people doing anything in ministry here, it's really good to have more than one person on a team. And I'm so grateful for the teams that get that, and you're encouraging one another. Because there are some Sundays, I know this will come as a shock to you, when I just am not feeling it. It's been a tough weekend. Maybe I've had to be a little later at nights and stuff. And, you know, when bedtime, when you get old, bedtime's at 830. <laughs> it gets tough. And so then you're showing up and you're thinking, okay, God, I need some energy, I need some energy. But you guys help give energy to each other, including me, when I show up and we think, we're doing this together. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. Here's another big thing that's important. Two people can remind each other of Jesus' words. That's vital. That's so important. We forget stuff. Have you noticed that? All you have to do to wonder if I ever do is just talk to my family. Yes, I forget stuff. I'm getting to that point now when I'm saying, oh, yeah, you remember that actor? He was in that movie. He's the guy that had two eyes, you know. Trying to be specific so you know which one I'm talking about. The stuff just goes, boo, we just forget stuff. But these guys were helping each other remember the words of Christ. And as I mentioned when we went back through the Sermon on the Mount series, Jesus was an itinerant preacher, which means he was preaching a lot of the same stuff, probably telling a lot of the same stories and parables over and over again, but in different locations for different reasons in different places. So they were really getting it. And they would be able to remind each other of that. So I imagine when they went two by two, they were probably reminding each other, in fact, of some of the things that they were learning from Jesus, and they had been for some time, so that they could accurately 
rightly divide his words that came right out of his mouth, and they were keeping it orally accurate that way. And this was a, a culture of oral tradition. People are used to doing that a lot more than we are. We have Siri, but they had oral tradition. So I think that it's good for us to remember that too. Uh, here's an apologetics application that jumps out of this section for us right now. The Bible, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, gets attacked often about being just, oh, it was written by a bunch of human beings. They don't think that it's an inspired word of God that we can trust and count on as being accurate. And it's amazing how they will come up with their own ideas about how the Bible came to be. And one illustration that they use is, oh, it came about like the telephone game. Are you familiar with the telephone game? I used to do chaperoning for youth retreats when I was younger and I could stay up all night in these lock-ins. A friend of mine was at a lock-in doing, a, he's a colleague, doing a lock-in with these folks. And the funny thing is, he said, you know, most of the telephone game, when you're trying to gossip your way through and say the first person whispers this story into the ear of the first person, and then they whisper it to the next one, it goes around the whole circle. What's the, what's the object of the game? They want to mess it up as badly as they can. That's the purpose. That's the way they think it's supposed to be. So it sounds ridiculous at the other end. That's what they're trying to have happen. So the person will whisper really, really lightly instead of doing that. He said, but one time it happened the exact opposite. He said, because I told him a story, true story, about when I was in the second grade. Now, this is my colleague. This is not me. And I peed my pants. He said, because I was such an obedient child that the teacher told us we can't get up from our seats and I was trying so hard to get her attention, but I was quiet, and I was an introvert, and I didn't want to raise my hand and feel like I was disrupting anything, and I thought, oh, man, I'm not going to make it, and I didn't. He said, but I had a plan, because I thought recess is next, and if I run fast enough, they won't be able to tell that I peed my pants, because it'll all be just a blur. He said, so I'm going to run from the monkey bars over to that section, and from there over to there. He said, but I still got caught. People ratted me out. He said, but it was all okay. My grandmother got the word, and she was available. She got some clean, dry pants and brought them to me, and I was able to change, so I lived through it. So that was his story. He said, they got that through 30 kids, word for word. He said, if it's an important enough story, people are going to hang on every word. They're going to get it right. And I'm sure that with Jesus teaching all these things over and over again, these apostles who are now inspired by those words, and they're charged to get the words right, they're going to hold each other accountable. No, 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 that's not what he said. We're going to do it this way. There's a guy that we had back in Arizona. He had been from Texas, and he went to do a conference where I was. Ralph Neighbor Jr., good writer. He wrote some things, one of the things that was a little booklet that we used for new believers. It was called The Survival Kit for New Christians. And it was great as an introductory course for discipleship. And Ralph Neighbor taught us these things, and he said, now we're going to divide up into small groups, and you're going to teach each other this one point. Then... Each of you are going to choose somebody in your group, and then you're going to teach the whole group. And that was his method. When you're doing that and you're practicing first with each other, so you're hearing it about three times in your small group, plus the other guy gets up and he preaches and teaches that same point to the big group, then everybody's gotten it. repeat exposure. They get it right. And one of the things we were supposed to do to each other is to make sure that we were getting it right by critiquing how the first guy did it. Well, you missed this one, and when you were quoting that scripture, this is the way it is. And that's how he built that in. This is Jesus' methodology. That's exactly what he was doing. So we can absolutely trust, folks, that when we're looking at the apostles' teaching, which is Bible study for us, the New Testament, it's accurate. We don't have to worry about that. And then we're getting to, there's just enough time for me to finish the verse 7. 
Aren't you excited that we've gotten through verse 7, that we're going to get through it today? Uh, this chunk of Scripture is so rich, and this is the third part, which shows us something about Jesus and his character. Jesus gave them authority to cast out evil spirits. Now, who can give authority to somebody else? Somebody who already has that authority and is at a higher rank, right? Think that in the military or whatever? Only somebody with the higher authority. Jesus had the highest authority level ever. For one thing, he's the agent of creation, so he kind of made it. But for another, he had demonstrated that he had the power over all creation. We saw that earlier in Mark's different miracles that he's starting to put forth with us there. So if you were to say, two objects of a different mass will fall at the same rate. Oh, you say, oh yeah, well, on, upon whose authority? You could say, on Galileo's authority. Because, this is a really cool thing, you scientists out there, you probably are familiar with this. Aristotle, who lived 1960 years or so prior to Galileo, had postulated, he had a, a theory that objects that are heavier would fall faster, which means that the light guys like me wouldn't splat as hard as somebody who's blessed with greater mass than me if we fell off a tall building. Because he felt that something of a smaller mass would have to fall at a lesser rate. That was his theory. And it stuck for a long time. I mean, that theory stuck for a long time, years and years, to the point at which in pizza, that's S-A, not the kind you eat, but Pisa, Italy, where you got the four-degree lean to the tower. Um, Galileo, Galilei, the mathematician and professor there, is thinking, you know, something should be done about that tower. That would be a great place to drop heavy things off of. I'm going to try it. So he's going to demonstrate what he had already seen demonstrated by other lesser-known people. It was like somebody who writes a great song, but they're not a great singer. And then somebody who's a wonderful singer sings the same, same song, and suddenly the song becomes famous. Well, other people in Italy had already demonstrated this, but they weren't good singers. And so <laughs> Galileo decides he's going to really make this experiment sing, so to speak. And so he gets up there with a one-pound weight and kind of looks like a little shot, ball of shot, and a 10-pound weight, which is about the size of a small cannonball. And he drops them off the tower, the leaning tower of pizza. Ooh, and guess what happens? They both hit at exactly the same time. Now, this is, of course, taking into consideration that this is not a feather and, you know, so there's no aerodynamics involved. These are just weights. But he proved the point that Aristotle was wrong. And he had been wrong for a long time. You know what, though? There were some people who were so steeped in their tradition of believing that Aristotle was right that even though there was indisputable evidence, they continued to hold to the fact that different weights would fall at different rates. Aren't people silly? And we still see that. There's irrefutable evidence sometimes when people say, nope, not believing it, for whatever reason. They want their heart to come through and what they want it to say, and so they'll make it say that. So here's the thing. Jesus gave the authority to these 12 disciples to cast out demons. On whose authority? Well, on his authority. He had already demonstrated it. Remember that guy? Thousands of demons, a legion of demons and he'd cast them all out. He had demonstrated it, they had seen it, and now he, with the highest authority of all, is also authorizing them and giving them the power to do the very same thing. And so it's a jaw-dropper part of Mark's description as we see this third part of verse 7. Jesus is the man. He's incredible. He's the authority who appeared to Peter and then to the 12 and then to more than 500 witnesses, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15. So he has demonstrated the evidence that he is the resurrected Christ, and we can take that to the bank. 
Let's close out this chunk of Scripture asking God to help us trust Him more fully even as we look into His Word for the principles that will help us to live truly as His disciples and not just the way our heart wants us to live. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so glad that you guide us as you promised to, that you guide us in the study of your own word, which you've given to us as a gift. Everything's a gift from you. Your salvation is a gift. Your word is a gift. The inspiration of your word is a gift. The interpretation of your word is a gift. You're a good God who gives good gifts, and we're the recipients, and so we thank you. I pray that you will encourage us through the word as we serve other people, wherever we may be, living out these principles out loud in our lives so that people can clearly see evidence that God is at work in our hearts and minds. And as a church, collectively but also individually in our spheres of influence, I pray that even when we get discouraged, we'll look back on passages like this and know that we're not alone and that we can gather together with other believers as we're doing right now and be encouraged and lifted up to continue living daily for you because you're the one who makes our life count for something, and we feel a sense of purpose as we're living for you. We thank you and we praise you in the name and in the authority of Jesus. Amen.